Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 18th, 2014, and before introducing today's guest, I want to mention that we've been adding some new material at econtalk.org to improve the educational experience of listening to EconTalk, or at least to try to. And I'd mentioned that in a recent episode with John Cochran. So please stop by econtalk.org, check out the recent posts there. And by following me on Twitter at econtalker or liking econtalk at Facebook, you can find out when new material is posted. And I'd love your feedback uh, at any time about how you find that new material, if you find it useful or interesting. Now on to our regularly scheduled programming. My guest is Megan McArdle. She writes at Bloomberg View, and she is the author of The Upside of Down. Megan, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. One of the main themes of your book is the value of failure, which when you're in the middle of it is often hard to perceive. Uh, that is the upside of down. Why is failure valuable? Uh, valuable, and why is it actually a good thing? Well, I mean, it's valuable because that's how we get information. You know, we like to think that there's uh, some way that we can just plan our way around failure, that we'll just sit down and think it out really carefully, and then we'll have a really good theory, and then we'll succeed. Um, and when you see, you know, the cover of a business magazine, it's always this genius with his folded arms staring at you and the piece goes through all of his brilliant ideas. But in fact, when you talk to entrepreneurs, that isn't how they experienced it usually. Usually how they experienced it was we had this great idea and then it turned out that didn't work, so we did something else. Or it turned out we didn't work and we went out of business. Um, and that's just generally true if you think about how science works, for example. I mean, it, it, it fundamentally works through failure, most theories that you test are going to be false because if you knew that they were true, they wouldn't be worth testing. And so how do you figure out whether something works or not? You don't go out and say, well, I'm going to you know, go. I, my theory is that there are 300 ducks uh, in Chicago and I'm going to look for news stories that show that there are 300 ducks in Chicago. You go out and look for news stories that show that there aren't 300 ducks in Chicago, right? Um because that's actually the, the fastest way to find out whether you're correct or not is to see if your thesis can be disproven. Um, and, and so you have to use failure to learn. There's just no other way around it. The problem is, of course, that it feels bad and it has to feel bad. Um, you know, a lot of the books on failure sort of try to talk you into believing that it won't hurt or you can just cheer your way out of it. And that's not true. I mean, failure really does hurt and it feels bad. Um, and if it didn't, we wouldn't stop doing things that don't work. Um, but you can sort of reframe how you react to it to make your reaction the most effective and to learn as much as you can and to get out of it as quickly as possible. And, and that's really the substance of the book is, you know, libertarians, economists and so forth have long talked about creative destruction, this idea that the economy works by taking an old idea that doesn't work and it's replaced by a new firm that does it better. Right. And that's the and that's absolutely true and right. But it also matters a lot what happens after those people and companies fail. And a successful society is going to be one that helps them get up, learn what they can, and move on rather than sort of staying stuck in, in what went wrong. Well, it's an interesting 
way to think of a distinction between what we might think of as micro failure and macro failure. I don't think that's not sure that's the right phrase I'd really want to use if I thought about it a little bit more. But what you're really, what you're talking about at this level is the virtue of trial and error for the economy as a whole. Yeah, that that you can't really plan stuff. We 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 let people give it a go, and the market decides, consumers decide, investors decide what works and doesn't work. And things that don't work get pushed to the side, and things that do work uh, survive and thrive. At, at the personal level, though, I think the challenge always is the lesson you learn from that, right? So, I think the case study approach to the business to business school uh, ha- leads to the danger of saying, "Okay, well, this firm failed because of X, and now I know don't do X." And I think that <laughs> isn't you're laughing, but I've, I've actually heard I heard a, 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 an out of work CEO who had failed terribly and his, country, his company had disappeared, um, a very successful and large company, once tell me that the reason he failed was because he had applied the wrong case study. He, had, he was a Harvard MBA, which is very uh, case study uh, based. And he said, I, I looked at my challenge and I used the wrong case study. I should use X and I used Y. And I'm thinking, boy, that's really not what happened <laughs> at all, right? But I think there is a temptation to... When the failure, the personal part of failure, right? It's one thing to say for the economy as a whole, failure is great, which I agree with. I think the challenge is, and you're right about this, when you have a personal failure, the challenge is what do you learn from it? So talk about what we should learn from our personal failures, not just from a policy perspective. No, this is a really great point. And uh, I'm actually taking a, uh, right now, um, sort of for fun, I'm sitting in on a policy failures class with Steve Tellis at uh, Johns Hopkins. And one of the things that he says is, you know, when you're doing policy, you're always reasoning by analogy. Um, and so the problem is if you get the wrong analogy, right? Exactly. <laughs> so and I, what, I should mention, Megan, I should mention that if all goes well, I, I have already taped the episode with, with Steve Tellis on kludgeocracy. So that, if all goes well, that will come out <laughs> Uh, that will have come out uh, before yours. So that's that's uh, interesting. So carry on. Yeah, but what he says, one of the things he really wants to do is just give potential policymakers a richer set of analogies to work with because the more analogies you have, you know, and that is, uh, you know, part of how you have to think of this is really, so um, one of the most interesting things that I, I looked at in the course of writing this book is uh, what Carol Dweck calls, uh, she's a psychologist, and she calls the distinction between people of a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And fixed mindset people think of any challenge as a referendum on them, right? You're born with a certain amount of talent, ability, and every time you do something, you're taking a dipstick and you're just measuring how, how good you are. Um, and growth people, on the other hand, are people who think of each challenge as a way to learn. Is something that you're you're trying and it's maybe not going to work out, but you're going to get valuable information from that. And that's actually true. That is, you know, fundamentally how you do learn. If you look at how brains work, you make predictions and then sometimes they don't pan out and the connections weaken or if they do pan out, the connections strengthen. Um, and so she actually said, I, I sat through the whole interview with her and at the end I said, I really, I have to confess something, which is I'm a complete fixed mindset person. <laughs> and she said, "Oh, me too." Oh, sure, yeah. Um, Many of us are. <laughs> right? No, I, I was good. I was always good in school, and I got the idea that success was about finding work easy. Right? You want to be that naturally gifted person who just kind of tosses it off, and it's not that hard. And so, when I struggled with things, I would have a tendency to give up, or at least to procrastinate terribly and put them off until the last moment. Um, and she said, I, "I knew I had 
I knew I was changing when I heard myself say, wow, I suck at this. This is really fun. And the funny thing is that in the course of writing this book, I found myself going through that same process of, you know, I'd already known this intellectually and I'd already, because of my work, you know, you get to be a, a writer at a major magazine. You you have to confront the fact that you're not going to like everything you write and you have to make yourself do it this, anyway. I need this your editor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, but I, so I'd already started this process of like forcing myself to do it, but I've really changed how positive I am about it, about saying, you know what, I'm going to do this and sometimes it's not going to be very good. Um, and saying, you know what, if it's gone wrong, I can pick myself up and do it again. And part of that is just having failed a bunch in my own personal life, um, is having that experience of having done it a few times you don't get to like it more, but you do get the sense of, oh, right, I actually can overcome this because I have in the past. And what you see with people who've succeeded too much is that they're often quite brittle. The first time, the, the famous example of this is General McClelland, who was the first general in charge of the Union forces. And he was the golden-haired boy of West Point. Everyone was so excited that he was going to be in charge, and he wouldn't attack. He just sat in Washington and demanded more troops, more troops, more troops. And the guy who finally, the guys who finally won the war were people like Ulysses S. Grant, who had basically sort of failed out of the it army. Was a, it and was, was a loser. His, <laughs> yeah, no, he was working at his dad's harness shop and had failed at business too. And, but he wasn't afraid. He was, he was actually willing to go out and try it, um, to go out and try attacking, even knowing that something bad might happen and so forth. Because, uh, as my former boss, Tina Brown said to me, she said, you know, once you've failed publicly and spectacularly, uh, it's like the best thing that can ever happen to you because after that you're fearless, right? The worst has already happened uh, and it's behind you. And that's a really important thing to do is say, okay, well, the worst has happened, it's behind me and, and pick up. And the people who do that, it's not, you know, some of it may be genetic and so forth, but you can teach yourself to do it. You can teach yourself to be better at it. Um, and you can make yourself doing it. Funnily enough, what I've found is just by telling yourself this is it literally, it's not like 10 easy exercises. It's, just reframing it to yourself, reading about a lot of other people failing as I did and understanding, oh, right, this is just part of life. This is not some special referendum on me who has screwed up beyond repair um, and is probably a worthless human being um, that everyone basically is, has gotten to this point in their own life. Phenomenally successful, amazing people have, have gone through this. It, it's surprisingly helpful in a way that I didn't expect when I started writing the book. Yeah, I think so. There is a temptation to uh, – the opposite bad version of that is, well, you got a D in math, but so did so did Einstein, so don't worry. <laughs> and I think for some people, I don't think that's the, um, that's the right way to think about it. And I think it is a challenge to, to frame it correctly, right? The, the worst version of this is the, is the self-esteem above everything. So no matter what you do, you're not a failure. Everything's great because a D is good. And I and I think the challenge is to figure out what what we can learn from it, as well as this 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 mindset thing. I saw myself, uh, unfortunately, in 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 your pages when you talked about this, because, and I think you may have used this exact example when I was when I was in graduate school. I'd love it when they'd ask a question that I hadn't studied for, or uh, we hadn't uh, we hadn't covered, because then if I failed, it wasn't my fault. You know, I was right. I, I was okay. I didn't my, my ego was not on the line anymore. I nerve easy questions made me nervous because I had to hit those out of the park. And if I didn't, I'm a failure. And I just couldn't I couldn't face that. It'd be awful. So I do think there's a real value to being able to um to to cope with that. 
No, it's it's really funny. Some of the stuff that people will do is amazing to me to sort of protect their self-image. And yet I see it in my own behavior when I was in high school, certainly, where I felt I got a lot of psychological juice out of finding schoolwork incredibly easy uh, compared to a lot of my classmates. And so, um, but it's this thing called self-handicapping, which can really go to astonishing lengths. So people will, for example, you give them a test where they, you tell them they did well, but they don't know how they did well because the secret is that the test is not actually possible to do well on um, uh, because the questions are constructed so that there are no right answers. Um, And then you give them the choice of a performance enhancing or a performance uh, dehancing drug, (laughs) inhibiting drug. Um, And people would choose the performance inhibiting drug because then they didn't try. As long as you haven't tried, right, it's not really a referendum on yourself. And you see this with kids who I'm sure we all knew them in high school, right? The kid who gets drunk the night before the SATs or doesn't do any schoolwork. I was that kid. Um, and it's a way of, of protecting your self-image, right? It's also something of lazy. I was also lazy. You know, I would rather be doing other things. But a lot of it really is, right? If I'm not trying, right. then I haven't really failed. Uh, and it's incredibly destructive. And yes, the object is not to just tell people that everything they do is okay. And that's really the unfortunate message of the uh, the uh, self-esteem movement. Some of the book is devoted several chapters just to figuring out when you've screwed up because that's surprisingly hard to do often and saying, okay, um, well, that didn't work. We should stop, right? Not that didn't work. I'm okay. You're okay. Um, you know, and, and the distinction you need to make, to make as between saying that just because this went wrong doesn't mean that I am a bad, stupid person who's never going to succeed because that's really destructive and it's, uh, thinking, it's probably not true. Um, but then you also, you have to, at the same time, while you're making that distinction, say, okay, but this thing I am doing is not working and I need to stop doing that thing. Um, and that, you know, getting a D in math doesn't mean that I shouldn't try harder or try something different. or It just means that I'm not hopeless, right? It's don't take counsel of despair, but at the same time, part of that means figuring out how to move on, not trying the same thing over and over again and hoping you get a different result. Yeah, and you, you talk about that uh, quite uh, entertainingly about your own romantic um, life <laughs> and um, when to uh, remember that sunk costs are sunk and it's best to move on. And we get to think about that with all kinds of choices we make, career, uh, our, our romantic life, et cetera. Yeah, I thought hard about whether to include that because, I mean, first of all, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, that I stuck with someone who then dumped me. Um, but you're also, the first person, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the first person so, that's ever happened yeah, to. Yeah, you shouldn't have written it down. Now everyone will know you're the, you're the one that that happened to. Yes, um, <laughs> but but also because you know it, it's the sort of story that most people do not write in books about economics and policy, which is a lot of what this book is about. But you know what? What I thought is, first of all, this is actually for people who aren't necessarily hardcore econ nerds, it's actually a really good way to illustrate sort of very, very vividly um, how these effects really matter in real life. Um, It's something that a lot of people can relate to, but it's also something where I actually really feel strongly that this is something that a lot of women in that age group, I've watched them do is stick with a relationship that's not working. And so I thought, you know, maybe, maybe some people need the illustration of sunk costs in terms of 
this bad relationship that didn't work out. But maybe some people in bad relationships that don't work out need the concept of sunk costs to get them to, to yeah. kind of stop it and move on. Sure. Uh, what about parenting? And we'll get to the economics soon and the public policy, but uh, I liked a lot of what you said about how we treat our children, both, uh, again, in the micro and the cultural way. The micro way is how literally we parent, but in the macro way, think about the way that our culture and society interacts with children. The, you know, they're, they're no... They're no losers. Everybody gets a trophy. Um, again, part of this is self-esteem, but part of it is also, uh, I just, uh, it's in the air and it's um, its the way we've been encouraged through emergent forces to treat our kids. And you don't think that's a particularly good idea? I don't. Um, you know, as I say, it really, having failed is an important skill that kids need to learn. And the right time for them to learn it is when they're kids and when the consequences for that are actually pretty low. You know, one of the, one of the book talks that I gave, uh, a 10th grade girl came up to me afterwards and she said, um, you know, I would really love to, I would really love to try to fail, but I'm in an IB program. Only 5% of the people who are in the program are going to get a 4.0 and I just can't afford to take a class that I wouldn't get an A in. Um, and I just thought, America, you're doing it wrong, right? I mean, this really, it's not that kids shouldn't work hard in school. That's not what I'm saying. But the idea that at the age of 15, you have to be so self-protective that you can't take any risks at all is insane. Because when is going to be a better time when she's looking for an assisted living facility? I mean, um, and, you know, it's, it's, first of all, it's terrible for the kids. Just to start out with having a kid who's living in that much terror at the age of 15, um, in what should be one of the relatively carefree periods of her life uh, is crazy. And we shouldn't be doing that to, to kids. But second of all, um, we need people who are not afraid to take risks. We need people who are not afraid to try something that they haven't done before now more than ever, because frankly, we're looking at a lot of demographic forces and other forces that are causing productivity to slow down. So we need more innovation and more people out on the frontier than we did 10 years ago. And, and we're grooming kids to have less of them. And part of that is the self-esteem movement of nothing bad is ever supposed to happen. And then part of it is this crazy educational system where everyone feels like the only way to get access to a good job is to go to a fairly elite selective college. And because there's fewer spots at those colleges than there used to be, Parents are just hovering over their kids, trying to make sure that they can't possibly put a foot wrong, because if they do, that'll knock them off the college application track and they'll never get back on. And that is, um, again, like the parents, you talk to them, they hate it. They don't want it. They see how destructive it is, but they also feel like they can't get off that that track. And so um, at a social level, I think we have gone badly wrong in how we are uh, how we are raising kids and yeah. how we're raising them to handle failure. I find that fascinating. I think about it quite a bit because I have teenage kids and it's uh I look at at the parents of my friend of my kids friends and and what their attitudes are toward college and high school and grades and um there uh it comes back to your earlier point which I think is really extremely useful to think about and I think it's not thought about which is we're encouraged to plan. Planning's good. Every, and everybody agrees with that. It's good. It's good to plan. It's good to look to the future. It's good to anticipate things. But it's that's different from having a plan that you are that you're wedded to and and are devoted to and have to keep. And so you know the plan is, and you talk about this in New York, where I think it's it's worse than than in many other places. But in New York, it's my kid has to get into a good 
pre-K program because if they don't, they won't get into the good elementary school that's the feeder to the elite high school. And then if they don't, because if they don't do that, they're not going to get into a good college. And if they don't do that, they're not going to have a good job. They won't have a good life. And that's bizarro. That is, that makes no sense whatsoever. And uh, to me, but that's just me. And I, you know, I raise my kids accordingly, but uh, it's interesting to me that so many people think that's a good way to lead their lives. Maybe they're right. You know, it just doesn't strike me as the as what life's about. As you point out, life is about the twists and turns and the surprises. And they are they're not not only are they not they're not counting on them, they're not ready for them. Well, I mean, the weird thing is that I think that most people don't think this is a good way to live their lives. It's just that they don't feel like they have any power to buck. I mean, you know, that we're so desperate for the race for a sure thing, right? Is that everyone, and what it, what you know from like con men is that the easiest way to cheat someone is to convince them that they found a, that they found a, a sure thing. And what we know from the financial crisis is that people who thought they had found a sure thing, you know, that was the most dangerous place we've been in as a society economically. Uh, for the last 70 years yeah, that's like, when we all thought we'd found a sure thing. Yeah, that's like the warning. It, it, if you learn nothing else from our conversation out there, uh, sure thing is, whoop, 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 you know, warning flags, uh, <laughs> exactly. alarms, uh, your, you know, your, your foot catches on fire. It should be some abrupt, immediate sign that run away. <laughs> But we, we feel the opposite, right? We understand, like, it feels so much safer to think that, and part of it is status, right? It's everyone loves telling that you're, they're, they're friends, their kids went to Harvard and so forth. And, um, but a lot of it is, I, it really is just this feeling that I want my kids to be safe. I want to, I want to guarantee them what I no, have. I think that's and what that it is. The only way I can do that is to put them through this insane lottery and it may make them miserable, but at least they'll have gone to Harvard. Yeah. I don't know. It's a weird thing. But let's talk about the, a place where th- there's a different culture, which uh, you write about, which is entrepreneurship. And uh, in America, failure is honored there. And to an amazing extent. I mean, really, if you think about uh, – I was talking, for example, to recently after I wrote the book, just talking to a guy who had been in, in 1999, the CFO of a web startup. And when the inevitable happened, um, he – was really worried because he wasn't really an entrepreneurial guy. He'd never had this, uh, been through this process before. He was really worried about what was going to happen and trying to find another job. And instead he was shocked because people were like, Oh, that's great. You must've learned a lot and you learned on someone else's dime, which is even better. Um, and I, you know, I want that person. I've talked to people who say they only hire, um, people who have failed because they figure who have been through that because they figure that person will have seen, it before and will their their spidey sense will go off when uh, when they're doing something risky, and that's actually really I mean it really is out there in a way that it's definitely not in a lot of other countries where you talk to them and and they view failure um, much more as a sign of of personal inadequacy, um, and so if you're in that position, it's hard to get another job doing doing something else. Whereas in America, it's it's viewed as a re- resume booster, and that really is, especially in Silicon Valley, it really is unique, and it really is a a kind of secret strength of that system because you're taking people who have there's a huge amount of information in failure, right? And you see this. One of my my favorite examples is uh, Vernon Smith and Bart Wilson's lab at Chapman, they've done experiments on, uh, on assets, on asset markets. 
And so they get students in a lab and they run it. it it's basically a, a kind of artificial security, but it real payoffs for these kids and they're trading. And every time in these markets, they see asset bubbles. And the only way to get rid of the bubble is to have the same people trade together two or three times. Because after that second or third time, people start getting the spidey sense that says, oh, wait, I've seen this before. This is a bad idea. Let's not do that. Um, and it's not even necessarily at the verbal level that people get those senses. Um, but it's really important because that's how, you know, that that's the information that you need in the market. And the really interesting thing is if you change the people in the market, if you take some of them out and put new people in, you get the bubbles again. So having that experience, having the, uh, that, that experience of having been through it, it's really valuable. And if you're in a country that sidelines those people, well, then all of the information that you got out of trying something and having it not work, you just lose that information. Let's talk a little bit about what information actually does get gained because obviously you can learn the wrong lessons as we suggested before. You can draw the wrong analogy. Uh, some of the lessons of failure are just that, that it ends and you can get out of it. I think one of the great – right? It, what we're really talking about here is if you constantly insulate people from failure, if you constantly ins ins insulate people from risk, when things do go wrong, they're remarkably unprepared to cope with it. There's no spidey sense, as you say, to start with. And then when they fail, they don't know what to do because they don't have any practice at it. How much of that is part of what you're talking about versus the actual knowledge that's gained? It, it, that sort of thing is hard to quantify, right? We can look at studies of entrepreneurs and, and what they do, but it's harder to quantify exactly how much of, is each piece. Um, but I will say that what you see in serial entrepreneurs um, is this incredible resilience. It's this incredible, and again, part of this may be their, their in it personality, um, but it's also a hard-won lesson of, oh, right, it didn't go wrong and that felt really bad, but then I did it again and it was okay, right? And, it, you know, the, the, you, once you've lived through it a couple of times, it no longer seems so terrifying to have something go terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, like the military is very good at this actually, right? They're very good at... Um, putting people through after action reports and actually dissecting in minute detail exactly what went wrong. Um, doctors do this with uh, when, when you have an adverse event, um, they put you through, there's a conference and everyone in your department sits around and talks about what you might've done wrong. Um, and it's really difficult. And obviously it's not anyone's favorite activity, um, but it's really valuable for two reasons. The first is that obviously that it, you're looking at what went wrong, you're getting information there, you're learning about it. But the second thing is that because everyone has gone through this, right? there is no one who is a successful doctor who has not been through a morbidity and mortality conference where like people talked about what they could have done differently to make the patient live or be healthier. Um, but because everyone's been through it, it normalizes the idea that error is, is obviously something that you try very, very hard to avoid and we have all these procedures and so forth. Um, but that having made a mistake, even a very bad mistake, um, is normal and something that, that in order to do better, you need to confront it and not to just sort of shun failure and pretend that it was some sort of um, terrible aberration of that bad person who's no longer with us. Um, and that's an incredibly, incredibly useful thing to have institutionalized. Well, I'm going to give you a different interpretation at the entrepreneurial level. And I, I 
I know you can't you can't quantify it, but it's it's interesting. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to think about. That was a trick question, Megan. Good job. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm thinking as you're talking about Steve Jobs, who failed famously a couple of times, uh, <clears throat> both inside Apple and outside of Apple. And when I read his uh, biography by Walter Isaacson, I, I was struck by how close he came to not making it, uh, both through his personal choices. Early in his career, he was a very um, off the outside the box kind of person. He had a lot of strange habits. He made a lot of strange decisions. They could have come back to haunt him. Most of them didn't, although I think some of them maybe affected his health. But so he made a lot of his personal decisions. But at the professional level, he had a lot of neuroses uh, that we celebrate. His attention to detail. Some of those things. Some of that attention to detail was bizarrely obsessive. Uh, you know, how beautiful the inside of a product had to be that no one would ever see, for example. And he yeah. spent a lot of resources, what the factory had to look like or the, you know, et cetera. And he spent a lot of resources and those decisions, it turned out great for him, but he could have, he could have failed. There's, and I mean, really failed. I mean, not become a great icon. I don't mean, oh, the iPhone might not have been as good. I mean, Never gotten a job back at Apple, never done anything that was uh, significant other than the early things he did uh, with the Mac. Right, and had he not gotten that job back, uh, Apple probably also would have failed. It appears, right? And, and, and when you look at it, again, just on the outside, you can't really know what happens inside, but to a person's psyche. But on the surface, he doesn't come across, at least in the biography of, that Isaacson wrote, as an introspective person who learned from failure. Uh, he was very self-confident and very little shook his self-confidence. So an alternative view of this serial failure in in Silicon Valley is these are people who are so self-confident that no matter how many times they fail, they don't, it doesn't change their self-perception. And there's, there's a value to that. It's, you know, if they fail again, they get thrown out again and, and that's okay. The system's pretty good at dealing with trial and error that way. But I wonder how much of it is actual learning versus um, persistence and um, grit. Some of it definitely is just, you know, you look at CEOs, they are optimistic people um, and they are more optimistic than, say, I would be, which is one reason, one of many reasons that I'm not a uh, successful entrepreneur. Um, but I do think if you look at the story of Steve Jobs, this is actually really instructive um, because after Apple, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with his kind of uh, what happened next, he went and founded another computer company and it didn't work. And in this computer company, because despite the fact that he'd been publicly fired, he had a lot of money. Um, and so he spent an enormous amount of time fussing with this computer trying to make it absolutely perfect. I almost bought one. Um, I came very close. It was beautiful. I loved it. It was the next, was the name of it. Yeah. It was beautiful, but I didn't. But it, it was incredibly he, expensive. Your experience was replicated <laughs> yeah, by so, many, many people. It was very expensive. Um, it was very expensive. It was beautiful. And, and because he'd spent so much time making it perfect, it was, you know, he kept getting superseded by things that would happen. He'd have to go back and, um, so it took much longer than it was supposed to. And I think he did actually learn from that. I think he did learn um, that he had uh, overwhelming tendency to do this, to be obsessive and try to make everything perfect. And, and he did pull that, dial that back a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit when he went to Apple because he saw how it had, had come out at NetNext. And so I do think that even with Steve Jobs, you're right, um, that there is – 
part of this really is a, uh, a bull your way through um, attitude. Um, but that said, you know, and you look at someone like Colonel Sanders, one of my favorite stories, um, and he's a little bit crazy. He keeps going out and, uh, and trying to get people to make this fried chicken and finally finds one after he's talked to about a thousand people. Um, but, and, and it was something in his character, but at the same time, he had come to that through a series of personal failures, economic failures, almost every kind of, he was really an amazing serial failure and he had gotten better at identifying what was likely to work. Um, and so even these guys who are extremely optimistic and get knocked down and just get back up again, um, they do learn from, from those failures and, and what they learn turns often turns out to, to be one of the hinges on which their later success depends. So let's talk about survivorship bias, which is something that I thought of while I was reading your book because the book's very inspiring in many, many different levels, um, personal uh, policy-wise, et cetera. We'll get to the policy stuff next. But the, the thought I had when we talk about these kind of examples is it's very easy to romanticize failure if you're not careful. So Colonel Sanders gets beat up, knocked down, but eventually becomes fabulously successful. Same with Steve Jobs, fired, failed new company. Uh, it looks like his story's over, but he persists and he makes it. And let's let's be optimistic. Let's let's say he did learn, and that was part of the reason he made it. But we don't see are the people who get beat up, give up, fail, try again, fail, and never learn enough not to never learn enough to succeed. And so. These stories about the virtues of failure are very um, unrepresentative of what failure really does. Failure is not good. It's really – it's awful. It's demoralizing. You don't learn that much because a lot of it's luck. And as a result, failure is uh, – you know, you're, you're making it sound like failure is this great learning experience. It's actually – it stinks. And we only think it's good because we see the ones who've, who've survived it somehow. What do you think of that? Well, it- uh, let me make a, a couple of points about that. I mean, I think that that's a, a fair, a completely fair question. Um, and I really tried hard to avoid that. Actually, I tried hard to avoid just saying like, "Oh, this is you know, just learn to love failure, and it'll be fantastic." Um, failure doesn't feel good, right? Like I, I went through it. It's terrible. It really is terrible. It doesn't just kind of, you know, sometimes feel terrible. It always feels terrible, and even people who are optimistic don't like it. It's not like Steve Jobs enjoyed getting fired. Um, he was pretty beat down about it. And then he got up and found it next and, you know, angry and so forth, but he didn't like it. Um, so it's not about learning to like failure and think that it's just a, a walk in the park and a, a garden of roses all rolled into one because that's not true. Um, and the second thing is that it really is true that um, it can be phenomenally difficult to recover and some people don't. Um, and I tried not to say otherwise. And the third thing is that, yes, luck. In fact, I wrote, you know, one of the chapters is about this, is about the way that we tell stories in retrospect and we say, oh, well, you know, this, I can describe the Mona Lisa and the things that make it the Mona Lisa. And then we leave out things like the fact that it wasn't very famous until it got stolen in, in the early 20th century. Um, and, what you're, what Duncan Watts, a sociologist, says is like we, we're telling a story where we think we're describing why the Mona Lisa is famous, but what we're actually doing is just describing the Mona Lisa. Um, and all of those things are true. But here's what is also true, which is first is that, you know, I love those movies where they say failure is not an option. Like failure is always an option. 
there's no um so I think that the price of admission to success is is a willingness to fail that being willing to fail does not guarantee that you will succeed, but not being willing to fail guarantees that you won't. And the third thing is that after you recognize that, right, after you've recognized that the only possibility for me having the kind of success that I want is, is taking some pretty big risks, um, is that you need to, to, first of all, plan for that and try to minimize the downside don't, it's not about taking stupid risks. It's not about just saying, well, well, let's do anything. And then, um, because there are lots of things that, you know, don't try to sell meat flavored ice cream. It's, that's not going to be a good business plan. And I'll, actually I make bacon flavored ice cream, which is pretty good, but in general, right? Like not a whole restaurant, this is meat flavored ice cream or, um, but that once you've done that, you should be trying to minimize the downside. You should be planning for failure. You know, when I bought my house, I talk about this at the end of the book. When we bought our house, we said, what would happen if we both lost our jobs and had to take jobs that paid half as much? That's how much house we can afford. Because the economy, you know, is 2010. The economy is uncertain. Let's just Journalism let's is have, uncertain. minimize the downside. <laughs> Journalism is uncertain. Ad revenue is tough and getting tougher every year. So let's minimize our downside. Um, and that enabled me to say, okay, well, then maybe I can try taking a new job, right? Maybe we can try doing more things because we don't have this mortgage that makes me keep, keeps me awake at night, right? Um, but also that both personally and socially, that you need to tell yourself when you see someone who's failed, especially if that person is you, okay, this was always in, possibly in the cards. This happened because I was doing something that had never been done before or that I had never done before, and there was no way to know in advance so I tried it and that was great and it didn't work and now I have to move on. Um, it's not just about saying that like, you know, anyone can be Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs had a lot of special things that made Steve Jobs, but anyone can fail better. Anyone can try. Anyone can take a risk. Um, and we should, both on the personal level and on the social level, be looking to do more of that, not less. And I think we're, we're often moving in the wrong direction. And I think part of that is our, it's a great way to sum it up. I, I think part of it is our desire to sometimes learn the wrong lesson, which is uh, if something went wrong, it must have been a mistake, whereas that's not true. Um, right. And similarly, things that go right doesn't mean I'm a genius. Uh, it, I may have been lucky. That I got the right ball in the urn, and that's why it turned out okay. And your point that if if you if you take some risk in life, you should expect failure. That's the level of planning. I think that's that's certainly the right level, Right. You're realistic, and it's very much, uh, as Nassim Taleb says, you want to be anti-fragile. It doesn't mean you want to take no risk. It means put yourself in a position where when inevitably things go wrong, it doesn't hurt so much. Exactly. I mean, like as I say in the book, the opposite of failure is not safety. It's nothing. It's, you know, success and failure are the same process if you're not trying something, especially in this economy, right? Like we think because the economy is more risky, that means that we should hunker down. and um, But in fact that strategy, you know, that's what the workers at GM did. They hunkered down in their solid GM jobs that couldn't go anywhere because it was GM. And then when the whole company went away, there was no backup plan. You live in Michigan. And the only thing you're trying to do is be an auto worker. Yeah. Um, that often taking risks is safer in the long run than trying to hunker down in what you think is, is some archipelago of, of safety. Because uh, when that archipelago gets overcome by the tsunami, there's nowhere to go. Let's talk about unemployment, which is a good segue to that. You talk a lot about how to deal with it. You were unemployed for quite a while uh, after getting your um, MBA at the University of Chicago, which 
should have been this great, uh, easy life, which it didn't turn out to be right away, right? <laughs> yeah. And you write very eloquently and movingly and, and informatively about that. Uh, but you talk about what it's like to be unemployed um, and what are some of the lessons that you think both you personally and the and the research on this has suggested for people who don't have a job? Because I do, it's a perfect example. I think inevitably people who lose their jobs blame it on themselves. Uh, most times it's not their fault, obviously, and yet they don't have a job, so they can't say. They look at their friends who do have jobs and they get depressed. So how, what are your, some of your, give some of your advice for coping with that. And then- Well, I mean, the first thing- is that that being unemployed is like the worst thing that can happen to you in a modern society except for death or dismemberment. It's really bad. It feels terrible and people treat you differently. It combines economic insecurity with rejection, right? Which are like the worst two things that happen to you. Um, And and so it's like, first of all, I would say my sympathies because I've been there and it felt terrible. Um, And the second thing is that, you know, when you look at economic research, what it tells you is incredibly banal in a way. What it tells you is that, for example, uh, who finds jobs faster? People who lower their reservation wage, which means they're willing to work for less than people who than they did before, um, and people who spend more time on their job search, um, and then people who move. Right? Labor mobility enhances the ability to find a job because, for very obvious reasons, there are. If you were looking countrywide, you have more potential job openings than if you were just looking locally. Um, So it seems really obvious, but people don't do it. If you look at what happens with people who are doing job search, their job search activity falls off pretty quickly. They exhaust their initial wave of contacts and then they stop. And it's not surprising that they stop because if you look at surveys of job seekers and also just completely intuitively obvious, they report that job search is some like the worst thing they do all day. It makes them anxious and depressed. And so they don't do it. Um, and this to me is an explanation for um, why unemployment, extended unemployment benefits seem to increase unemployment. Is not that people are, there are people who abuse the system. I've met them. You know, they wait. They just basically sit on their benefits until their benefits are exhausted and then they go find a job. Um, but for a lot of people, that's not what ha- what's happening, I think. I think what's happening is that that anxiety and depression is so terrible that they want to avoid it. So they put it off. And when you have that extended unemployment benefits, it enables them to put it off because it's not so completely urgent that you have to go out and get a job and do something Um, or take a job that pays less than you used to, or is it a lower level or in a different industry or whatever it is, it enables you to put off making really hard decisions. Unfortunately, especially in this job market, what we see is something called labor scarring where people who are in the job market for it looks like about six months, there's a radical drop off in their ability to get people to call them in for an interview when they send in their resume. And so you're enabling someone to make what is a completely rational and understandable short-term decision, because again, it really does feel awful, uh, but a terrible long-term decision. And so I, what I talk about in the book is um, thinking about systematizing it, taking the decision to do that job search out of your own hands because that's where you're going to fall down. So make a system and focus on the process, not on the outcome. You can't control when you get a job, but you can control how much time you spend doing things you really don't like doing, like calling people who you don't know and asking them for an informational interview or a job or calling people you don't like and doing the same or you know doing one ads and so forth. 
um, is that you set those goals up, you write down the goals and you tick off the goals and you focus on that and you give yourself kind of those little wins of saying, okay, I did this. And then go out and find other people who are in the same boat because they're the only people who really understand your misery um, and get support from those people. Um, because it really is tough, but the most important thing you need to do the minute you get laid off is go straight into gear and just keep doing those hours of job search every day, even when you don't know what to do. The being focused on doing job search you, and thinking of something to do uh, is much better use of your time. You made the and, analogy. You make the analogy of cold calling and sales, and yes. uh, which is my uh, my younger brother is a phenomenal salesperson and spent a, a summer selling uh, encyclopedias door to door in strange cities, which was a one. By the way, another great example of how failure made him a great salesperson. Because strangely enough, most people do not want to give a stranger – most of them, they don't want to let you in the house. And then once you're in the house, they don't, uh, they don't really want to give you money, uh, which you're not no. – and you're not going to give them the book. You're going to come back at the end of the summer and bring the book. It's a <laughs> hopeless task. So you, you are set up to fail. And uh, he failed relentlessly, but he's extremely good at it by the end of the summer. But as you point out, one of the things that salespeople do in that situation is they have a routine that they don't deviate from. Uh, and one of the things that, that was amusing about his summer is that his boss would constantly be calling him. And if he ever was not selling, which was always tempting, sleep, lay, do other things, uh, the boss would – that was the only thing the boss cared about, that you were on the street, knocking on doors. He wanted you to have a good sales pitch too, but he knew that the main thing that counted was the denominator, get the hours in. And so I think yeah. uh, it's, it's hard to do, but that's, that's a great analogy. Well, and I, I use that analogy because I spent a summer canvassing, which is similar except for nonprofits. And it's it's a very similar thing of most people you talk to are just not going to give you money. Um, and most of them don't want you there. They would rather you hadn't knocked on their door. And it's it's and I turned out to be surprisingly good at it, which is not necessarily something you, you want to know about yourself, that you're really sure. good at selling door to door. Um, but that it really is that focusing on your speech, focusing on your tick sheet of how many doors you're going to knock on, that's, it's, it's the numerator and taking that decision to go up to the door out of your hands or what to say out of your hands, systematizing it is the only way you get through the day. And the funny thing is that by the end, you don't need it so much because you've done it enough that you're not so terrified of that door. But I still remember the first door I knocked on. This is more than 20 years later. Uh, and it was a guy I was canvassing for PERG, which is an environmental group. And it was a guy who worked for DuPont and started yelling at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the end of the summer, you're not afraid of that guy because you had like 20 of them. Uh, but those first ones, it's really, really important just to have this. You want to go home sure after that. that you're, oh, my gosh. You have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I was just, you know, chipper, 19-year-old, kind of lefty, really believed in the environment. It never occurred to me that anyone would yell at me. Um, <laughs> they had sort of. It sort of downplayed that in the, in the recruiting. <laughs> so it's huge. It's huge to have this. And that's why I went to that. And you talk to salesmen too, because I'm always in awe of, of what good salesmen do. Um, and the funny thing is that like most of the, there are some people who are just freaks and will enjoy cold calling, but 99.99% of them tell you they still hate cold calling. When they go to a new company, when they go to a new beat, whatever it is, they hate it. They hate getting on the phone and trying to get someone, um, but they learn to do it. And the way they learn to do it is usually by setting numerical targets. Okay, I'm going to do this many. Um, because they know it really is like single best predictor of, um, of how many you sell. That's what they'll tell you is, is just how many people do you talk to. 
And so it's obviously not by far not the only thing, but it's the start. If you don't do that, you're not, there's definitely not any second or third step. Yeah, and the the uh, camaraderie part, as you point out, is also very important about those groups, the unemployed and the salespeople, because they're going through the same thing. No one else appreciates it, and it's hard. Yes, definitely, no one else appreciates salespeople. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. Even though they're they're really oh, important, no, the, the, the the oil that lubricates the economy. <laughs> but uh, no, I bet. I mean, no, they feel outside. I bet nobody so appreciates. I bet nobody appreciates what they're going through. I didn't mean that nobody appreciates yes. them. No, no, I just, that's what I mean is no one is really sympathetic when you're like, well, I had to call this stranger and you're like, I hate it when people strangers yeah, okay. call me. Why did you do that? <laughs> Let's talk about bankruptcy. Um, talk about what's unusual about American bankruptcy. Uh, for our American listeners, we don't know anything else. For our non-American listeners, you may live in a country with a very different uh, set of rules about bankruptcy. You write about that. Talk about what's different about America versus other countries and why you think that's a good thing. So America has the most generous bankruptcy system in the world, which is something that a lot of people don't know and quite a lot of people are surprised by. They tend to assume that, well, if you're in Scandinavia, obviously it's just much more friendly to um, to people who've borrowed money because Scandinavians like the underdog and they take care of that guy. But in fact, in Scandinavia, it's much tougher. And I, I talked to a Scandinavian entrepreneur who had gotten caught um, in, in that bind of being unable to declare bankruptcy, even though he had a lot of debt that was crippling him. Um, so in America, it, it, we're so much laxer that I was I was in, interviewing a, an expert on a completely different topic on Russia. This is a Scandinavian guy, and just in the middle of the interview, he just started making fun of the American bankruptcy system. And he said, "So you can just go into a judge and be like, I don't have any money," and the judge says, "Okay, well, don't pay then," and that's it. <laughs> and he thought this was ridiculous, um, and it is surprising, right? If you think about it, if you stop and think about it, the fact that we allow people in, in chapter seven, uh, it's only for consumers, not businesses, but to just walk in and say, you know what? I borrowed all this money and I don't have any money. So here's the 37 cents I have in my wallet and I would like to be discharged from all this debt and that we do it. Uh, that's a really remarkable invention. And the history of this is, is a little bit weird. We didn't even have a bankruptcy code until 1898. Um, and then when we did, there were a lot of small farmers in the West who owed a lot of money to bankers back East and they liked easy bankruptcy. So they got it. Um, and then that's grown over the years. And so the United States system really is unique in that way. Also in how we handle corporations, we're much more likely to try to reorganize a firm than to let it liquidate. Um, and the funny thing is that the American bankruptcy system is a neat little natural experiment because the law is federal. It's in the constitution that the, the, the federal government has the right to establish the bankruptcy code. But the exemptions, how much you can shield from your creditors, that's local. That's uh, by each state. And so what we can see when we look at different states is that the states that have more generous exemptions also have higher rates of entrepreneurship. And this is actually not shocking, again, for some of the reasons I've been talking about. First of all, prospectively, it's easier to start a business if you're not terrified that the bank is going to take your house and your kids will be on the street. But also, um, if you look at what's happened to people afterwards, and that's why I went to Scandinavia, and, or I didn't go, but I mean, I talked to a Scandinavian, a Danish entrepreneur, to talk about what happens to someone who was an entrepreneur and has failed, or had a, in his case, he didn't fail, but he had a serious setback. Um, what happens to them if they don't have bankruptcy? 
because what happens is that they get shackled to that debt and they can't grow their business and they can't do anything except struggle to pay off this huge debt. And that is something that, that America ended up doing really well. And it not intentionally, we didn't start off saying, Hey, this would be great for entrepreneurship. Uh, but we discovered this little secret sauce, uh, for making entrepreneurship easier and better. Um, and it's one of the, the hidden strengths of the American economy. And unfortunately, uh, it's something that we've been backtracking on or, or did in 2005. Uh, and so I actually went to Memphis, which is the bankruptcy capital of America. And since America is the bankruptcy capital of the world, probably the bankruptcy capital of the world, um, to look at, you know, what is the downside of this? Because there, there's always a downside to any policy. But the downside, when you look at it, is so small compared to the upside of, of entrepreneurship. Um, the, talk about it, talk about really, the rates because it's informative. Uh, of of Memphis has the. And by the way, I'm I was born in Memphis. My, my, I've, oh really? Yes, I did not I, know that. I have a lot of family there, so I don't say anything too horrible about it. Um, <laughs> I loved Memphis. I barbecue every night. Uh, it's a nice city. It's okay. I, I mainly like it because my family's there, but it's okay. Uh, I have a running joke with my brother about whether it's as good a town as where I live, wherever I happen to be living at the time. He lives in Memphis. I don't. But anyway. Uh, what's interesting to me is that the rate in Memphis is very low, but it's much higher than elsewhere. So it's just part of what you're saying. So talk about what the magnitudes are, if you have them at your fingertips. So it's, uh, it, it, you know, it changes every year, but it hovers in Memphis around 1%. And that is enormous. <laughs> it doesn't sound like that big a number, but that's 1% every year. Of so, 1% of the population of, of, the population of, adult? of Memphis declares bankruptcy. Yeah. Uh-huh. That just seems like a big number um, to me. It's, it's a huge number. It sounds like, oh, 1%. But it, cumulatively, if you think about it, that over a lifetime, it would mean that if it, this were true generally, it would mean that most of the people you know would have declared bankruptcy. And it's a little misleading because um, Memphis has a lot of uh, Chapter 13s, which instead of Chapter 7, which is the I don't have any money, judge, discharge my debt. Um, it's a payment plan. And so people, payment plans, as you can imagine, more people flunk out of them. And then they'll, they'll often try to refile and reinstate it. So it isn't true that um, every single, right, that 70% of the population of Memphis over a lifetime declares dead bankruptcy. But it, You're telling me they're deadbeats. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true that a very high percentage of the population of Memphis has declared bankruptcy and it shows up in the availability of finance there. Uh, Forbes went down and looked at this and, um, in 1997 and I went back and I talked to the bankruptcy judges and indeed they say still you get a lot of what are called tote the note lots, um, which are basically the dealer, um, the dealer will lend you money at very high rates of interest, like credit card, like rate, rates of interest. But the down payment they require is basically the wholesale price of the car. They buy all huge numbers of cars at auction for very little money. Um, and so, you know, you're paying an astronomical fortune, but they won't lend you. The down payment has to be the what they paid for the car because the rates of default are so high. <laughs> um, and you see a, a lot of that in Memphis. She said that, that there's still the local finance system ends up being... But on the other hand, you know what? A lot of people in Memphis are really poor. Um, it's a the average income in the city is in the low thirty thousand range, and it's just it's a it's a poor city. It is disproportionately black in an area where which means not just low incomes, but uh, black families tend to have a lot less wealth and savings than white families do because you've got you know it's the le- whole legacy of low incomes percolates through the generations. Um, 
And so overall, you would expect to see higher rates of bankruptcy. Um, and mostly what it ends up looking like is that this is the price we pay for free availability, for easy availability of credit. And that that's a pretty good trade-off. Not always a perfect trade-off, but it's it's a, a pretty decent trade-off. Um, and most of the people in Memphis benefit from the system, including, funnily enough, the creditors. You know, I asked them about, there was this provision that was designed in the 2005 law that was designed to prevent refiling bankruptcy. And um, judges aren't enforcing it. And so I asked her about it and she said, I'm not enforcing it because no one's complaining. Hmm. They would much rather have these people in a payment plan um, and have the trustee collecting the check than to have to go chase after this guy and garnish his wages himself. So, you know, it's a funny sort of win-win. We don't have time to talk about it at length, but I want you to mention a similar part of what we're talking about here is responsibility, second chances, uh, moral hazard, all these things tie into these types of decisions that we make at the policy level. And it's interesting to me that you port, you profile a parole system that is relentlessly unforgiving, remarkably successful, and uh, actually reduces uh, the problem in a very interesting way. So talk briefly about that. We're low on time, but it's so such a great uh, story. It is a great story. So it's a judge in Hawaii who looks at the normal parole system. Um, basically, you're, you've got sort of a suspended prison sentence, and you have to show up for your probation appointments, take regular drug tests, and so forth. Um, and what happens in a lot of cases is that people violate their parole a bunch of times, and then eventually, after 10 or 20 times, the parole officer, uh, probation officer gets fed up and says, okay, that's it, you're going to prison. You're not complying, and we're going to send you... So the judge looked at this, Judge Alm, he said, this is crazy. What we should do is do what you do with your kids, is every time you violate, we punish you, right? Instead of nothing, 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 bam, five years in prison. And so that's what he did. He said, every single time you violate, you're going to jail, but only for a few days. And it has cut the rate of people who end up with prison terms in half. It has saved the taxpayer money and the probationers love it. It's, it's one of the rare kind of win-win. And I think this actually goes to why bankruptcy is great and why this works better than traditional probation, which is that you think about punishment and you think about failure should not, as I say, it should hurt. That's how you say, don't do that. Um, But you want it to hurt in a very specific way. And how do you think about that? First thing, um, the pain should not be crippling, right? Um, Second, it should always happen. It should follow from things that don't work. Um, or things that in the case of probation often are things that are morally wrong. Um, it happens every time. And then the third thing is that it should enable you to move on, right? And that is actually what this is focused on is keeping you out of jail, keeping you connected to the labor market, to your family, not to prisoners where you can learn more about being a criminal. Um, and it's phenomenally successful at focusing people on the future instead of focusing on their past because they're still in the community and they're still learning to be sort of functioning members of the community. Um, so it's a phenomenally powerful thing because it does hurt and it hurts immediately. And, you know, over the past 50 years, we've been struggling with this crime problem. The answer has always been harsher, you know, three strikes and you're out laws, harsher prison sentences. And what Judge Alm said and what Mark Kleiman, from whom I learned about this and who's written a great book on this called When Brute Force Fails, is that this is exactly the wrong way to think about it. The thing is not to make it so the punishment so terrible. It's to make it more consistent. 
and it's just remarkably effective. And I wanted to put this in the book because I, you know, I end by talking about forgiveness and how important forgiveness is and how much cheaper it is than we usually think. We usually spend too much time worrying about abuse and too little time worrying about the people whose lives are affected when we punish them. Um, but that in this case, like you do need to punish people, but then how do you do it so that you maximize the chances of rehabilitation and minimize the damage to both society and the person? And this is why it's such a great story because you don't report on a lot of policy stories where there genuinely seem to be very few trade-offs, but this is one of them. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. And I, I, it reminds me of a thing that I find strange about the law and economics literature, which is the focus on expected punishment. So expected punishment is price times the outcome. And it, that's the expected value. It's on average. If you, if you fail a lot, that's what the average outcome will be if you, if you commit a lot of crimes. Um, of course, any one crime you might get away with and pay nothing. Uh, but sometimes you get caught. And so some economists have said that you know, the ideal punishment is therefore a low probability with a very high, a rare cost of punishment imposed. And that has two problems. One is it's not fair. It doesn't, it doesn't affect our sense of fair. It doesn't jive with our sense of fairness. But the other is it, it sends a terrible signal to the, a person who's maybe not so good at probability theory about what the yes, odds are exactly. of getting caught, which are, oh, I got away with it. I'll do it again. And so we care about how much of it there is, not just the – obviously about the, the expected punishment isn't the right thing. And this is really saying that – it's not so much the expectation; it's uh, it's it's the probability that matters more as much if any, as anything. And I think for parenting, it's the, it is the exact same lesson, which is consistency is overwhelmingly the key to good parenting. That when you suggest a punishment to your child, a consequence that you carry it out, and therefore it, it tells you don't set a consequence you can't carry out. Like those probation officers saying, "Well, it's only his third violation; it's not really that big a deal." Instead, you're relentlessly consistent, which is a pain in the neck but it means you get less violation. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, criminals in general, right? Crime does not pay very well. The, the way, average wage is pretty low, um, which means that the people who go into crime in general are not people who are necessarily geniuses at math. And so expecting them to have this, this kind of elaborate, in fact, what we know is that a lot of them have impulse control problems. And so expecting them to do this elaborate probability calculation that works really, really well um, for people, upper middle class people who are pretty good at probability theory. But, you know, like I went into one of those holding cells. I was there for a minute and they closed the door. I would have done anything never to go into that cell again. Um, but clearly that has not been enough for some people. And so you have to think about it in terms of, you know, what works for them for people with low impulse control problem, maybe not going to calculate their probability of getting caught for armed robbery um, you need to think about the things that are actually going to work on that population. And, and that's what Judge Alm did. And, and the amazing thing, too, is that it's in the first thing he says is everyone in this room wants you to succeed. And so what it does is it puts it instead of in this adversarial kind of cops and robbers thing where I'm trying to catch you, um, it gives them control, puts in the context of a relationship where everyone's trying to help you succeed and they control the outcome. A hundred percent you can control whether you test dirty on a drug test, right? You can control whether you show up uh, for probation. And if you do those things, the outcome is completely certain. And that's something that they usually haven't had in their lives. And so in a way, it really is giving them the kind of framework that most middle class people grow up with, but most people in the criminal justice system don't. 
you know, I, I think most middle class people or upper middle class people are bad at probability theory too. Uh, and, and <laughs> better I think though, better. Maybe, maybe. But I think the real lesson is uh, the, the additional application of this is teaching where I think it's very easy to um, think I'm testing you and I'm the teacher. I'm giving you a test and my, my job is to make it so hard that, that you do badly. Some of you do badly. And really the goal is that everybody gets an A if they earn it. And um, right. it's a, I think uh, my wife's a high school teach, math teacher. And I think when you, when you come to your students with the attitude, we're all in this together. I want you to thrive and succeed. You get a very different student response than I'm the toughest teacher in town and uh, I give lots of Fs because that's going to motivate it. Well, it does. It motivates some of them. But the better motivation is to say is, is that judge does. Uh, we all want you to succeed. It, it's, a, it's a bad situation when you fail. We're not, we, we will catch you when you fail, meaning we'll, we'll find out. Uh, and we will try to right. find out. That's okay. That's part of the deal. But we'd love not for you not to fail. Yeah, it's a really different mentality than we've had. It's more of what we had in the 50s and 60s. Um, but unfortunately, the end result of that in the 50s and 60s was not we're trying to help you succeed and not being criminals, but like we're just going to stop punishing you for committing crimes. Um, and that was obviously a, a very bad approach um, because, you know, like I went in there too and I'm basically a libertarian and I was expecting um, – uh, just a lot of nonviolent drug offenders and so forth. And that wasn't what I saw. Everyone, something like 75% of the people I saw ha were in fact on drugs because um, they asked them. They say, we're going to give you the first drug test. You need to tell me now if you're going to test dirty because you used before this hearing. Um, and like two-thirds of them raised their hands. Um, and so I had been expecting a lot of nonviolent drug offenders, but it's stuff that's pretty inarguably wrong, assault and robbery and burglary and, you know, child abuse and, and so forth. They're not really things that we're, we're very conflicted about. Um, and so it is in the context of saying, like, we want you to not do these things, not we just don't want to punish you and hope that you stop doing them. Last question, and then we'll st we're, we're out of time, but it, I just want to ask you, you're now an expert on failure, because you've written a book on it, and you've, <laughs> that's the definition of an expert uh, in our culture. And you chronicle your failure, uh, both, again, romantically and professionally, and it's fascinating. I wish we had more time to talk about it. You'll have to read the book out there. Um, but I'm curious, now that you're an expert, do friends come to you for advice about how to deal with failure? Uh, it's it's really you know, a friend whose husband's going through a tough time with the job markets, and I'm buying it for him. And I had this moment of... Um, you know, it's such an intimate thing to have someone tell you that. Um, and I'm used to strangers because I write personal finance columns and so forth. I'm used to strangers saying these things, but I've never had a friend say like, I'm, you know, having my husband go to you for good job advice. And I'm, you know, the chapter in the book on employment really is the state of the art and economic research drawing on a, a very good paper um, by Alan Kruger, who was the head of the CA for a while. Um, but it's it is a little terrifying when you think, wow, you know, my friends are are relying on me, and and you're I'm now in this relationship with them that I never had before. Um, but it's also really nice. I mean, the number of people who are friends who have shared stories that I didn't know, uh, the number of people who are strangers who have shared stories about their own failure, and that was the thing. That was the other thing I was thinking when I, you know, when I when I had this bad breakup, I decided to tell people that it had happened and not be like, you know, 97% of the people you ever meet, somehow they all initiated the breakup. Yep. Um, and so I was like, no, I'm just, I'm just going to say what happened. 
And the thing that you're afraid of is people saying, oh my God, you loser, right? <laughs> and that wasn't what happened at all, is what happened was people shared their own stories um, and said, oh yeah, that happened to me too, and I got over it, and now everything, you know, this is this is the end game, it's not nearly as bad as you're afraid of. Um, and you'll be glad this happened, which turned out to be true. And really astonishing, one of the things I talk about in the book is the astonishing number of things that get attached to the words, the best thing that ever happened to me, like cancer and prison. Yep, you read it all the time um, too. I, since I read your book, I've noticed it at least twice uh, where people yes. talked about a, their company failed or they lost their job or they got sick and they said it's the best thing that ever happened to them. Um, and they mean it. They're not, they're not just putting a smiley face on it. I'm, I'm really glad that that breakup happened because uh, I met my husband and he's great and we're very happy. But um, is, is, it's, a really scary decision to go out there and, and tell those stories. But when you do tell the stories and people tell their stories back, um, it's really this is an incredible, powerful bonding moment. And I wish more people would do it. I wish more people would be more honest about their failures. It's hard to get people to talk about them because they're ashamed. But if we, when we do, my experience at least has been that inevitably it's a moment where you get closer to someone, even someone who you thought you knew very well. Um, so it's it's been really rewarding in that way. My guest today has been Megan McArdle. Megan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.